Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. In this week's Science Revolution, will the virus stop the Trump cult the way defeat in World War II stopped the fascist cult? Dr. Michael Mann is with us on how the Trump administration boosts deregulation by undervaluing the impacts of climate change. Tony Corvo drops by about a new rule. Americans are now eating chickens with cancer. Is that healthy? He'll let you know. Jenny Harbine tells us about a new lawsuit to stop Trump from handing public land to coal companies. Plus, geeky science. School openings? Well, studies now show young kids could spread COVID-19 as easily as older children and adults. Stay tuned. Now, how to respond to the economic crisis caused by the COVID pandemic? And what would be the most efficient and effective way for the federal government to respond to this economically, from an economic point of view? You know, we can talk about the politics of this in just a second, but just looking at it economically. Prior to 1981, when Ronald Reagan got sworn in and changed the economic systems of the United States from Keynesian economics, demand-side economics, to Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, horse and sparrow economics. Prior to 1981, pretty much everybody in America understood, outside of a few Republicans, understood that the thing that drives an economy is something called by economists aggregate demand. And aggregate demand is a fancy phrase that basically means wages. Money in the hands of working people. Working people take that money, they go out in the marketplace and they spend it, they buy things. In response to buying those things, companies have to make more of those things. They have to manufacture them. They have to ship and transport them. They have to put them in retail locations or online. And they have to sell them and ship them to customers. And then they have to replace them again. And that's how an economy works, right? Economics 101. Economies are driven by demand. There are a few rare exceptions to this that are typically touted by supply-siders like, oh, well, you know, Steve Jobs invented a new phone, you know, the iPhone, and all of a sudden there's demand for it. Well, yes, innovation will produce demand. But number one, it's the exception to the rule. It's not the rule. It's maybe 5 or 10% of the time rather than 95% of the time. And number two, even in the presence of great innovation, Just because something is really cool and it's available doesn't mean people can buy it because they don't have the wages. They don't have the money. So the question I'm asking is, what if we stopped altogether, like Herbert Hoover did in 1929, stopped subsidizing corporations and rich people, period, full stop. 
Not another penny to a corporation in America. Not another penny to a billionaire in America. No more subsidies. That's it. And instead of directing, you know, we've got now $7 trillion out of the Fed, $3 trillion out of the Treasury that have gone to big corporations and rich people in the hopes that some of that would trickle down to average working people. Instead of doing that, just pull the rug out, pull the plug, whatever metaphor you want, get rid of that and just say, we're going to direct all of our money into the pockets of average working people and poor people. All of it. Which, by the way, is pretty much what Franklin Roosevelt did to get us out of the Great Depression. He put into place unemployment insurance. He put into place the Works Progress Administration so people all over the United States could work and get paid. He put into place the CCC, the Conservation Corps, Civilian Conservation Corps, so that people could plant trees and get paid. Roosevelt famously said, you know, a job is the best welfare program. Yes. Right now, though, you know, jobs where people have to show up and get exposed to a deadly virus, not such a good idea. But we can simply transfer money into people's pockets. The money that otherwise would have gone to billionaires. Donald Trump, I don't recall if he said it himself or if it was, you know, one of his spokespeople, basically about how he wants to cut the benefits to average Americans, you know, cut it down to $200 or less. You know, people are not, you know, they're not willing to go to work. Employers can't find people because they're making more money on unemployment. Quack, quack, quack. So, you know, let's just blow that up. And let's just say, yeah, we're going to give money to people. We're not going to give money to corporations. And we're going to give money to people until this administration gets this virus under control. They've got it under control largely in South Korea, in Taiwan, in New Zealand, in Australia. Yes, they're having small outbreaks in all those places from time to time. In most of Europe, the entire European Union, all 500 and some odd million of them, larger than the United States, the entire European Union has fewer new cases of coronavirus every day than Texas. In fact, Texas has, I believe, three times as much. I think the EU is averaging between two and 3,000 new cases a day, and Texas is hitting around 10,000, Florida over 10,000. When Trump gets the coronavirus under control, then we can talk. But until then, we need to be handing money to individual people. And what that will do, if we stop subsidizing these giant corporations, a lot of them are going to fail. A lot of these giant monopolistic businesses are going to go out of business. And that's a good thing. As Herbert Hoover pointed out in 1929, he just forgot the part about the people. But in terms of the business landscape, it really is Darwinian. When a business can't meet its customers' needs, in this case, they're not providing things that people want to buy during a time of crisis. When businesses can't do that, they go out of business. I've started a couple of businesses that failed. Every serial entrepreneur has started businesses that failed. Ever since the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic, the Republicans' price for unemployment checks and other benefits going to average working people has been several trillion dollars. Seven trillion of it coming out of the Fed, about three trillion of it coming out of the U.S. Treasury, several trillion dollars in tax breaks for billionaires and big corporations, grants, free money, for billionaires and big corporations, and of course, you know, the money that the Fed put out. And now Republicans are saying, hey, we want to cut that $600 a week that you're getting right now. 
You know, 25 million unemployed Americans, we want to cut that $600 a week down to $200 a week. But we want to give immunity to corporate CEOs and big corporations when they make stupid decisions that cause people to die. That is the core and essence of Mitch McConnell's sales pitch. We need to provide corporate immunity and we need to cut the amount of money going to people. What's it going to take to wake people up in America, the few that are not yet awoke, you know, <laughs> awakened, which would be roughly a third of Americans if the opinion polls are proper, to wake Americans up to what the Trump death cult is all about. You know, keep in mind that the cult of fascism, whether it was the Nazis in Germany or the emperor worship in Japan, those cults were only shattered by losing a world war. It appears to me that Donald Trump is losing the war with the coronavirus. Will that be enough to break the hold of his cult? And then, you know, on top of that, you've got the other Republicans coming along and saying, ah, screw the working people. So the federal government is under an obligation to, in a whole variety of ways, basically protect us and the planet and the country. And, you know, they have to make decisions all the time based on what you might call risk benefit or cost benefit analyses saying, okay, do we mandate seatbelts? How many people's lives will be saved versus what does it cost? Those kinds of things. We're all familiar with this. And back during the Obama administration, the law required that the administration base decisions about things like tailpipe exhaust or power plant exhaust or how much waste could come out of the Koch brothers' refineries on an estimate, a scientifically determined estimate of how much carbon pollution costs society and the world. And the Obama administration estimated that as of 2020, and they were looking forward into the future, that would be around $50 a ton. And they said by 2050, it'll be $82 a ton. So the Trump administration just rolled back a whole bunch of regulations and said that they were doing this based on a brand new assumption of cost, that it's only a dollar a ton, maybe seven at the worst, in terms of the damage of carbon pollution now, and that by 2050, it'll only be $11 a ton. And as a result of this, they're able to get away with all kinds of crazy stuff. This is flat out nuts. Let's ask one of the top climate scientists in the world how this came about, what he thinks about this, and what the implications and practical effect of this will be. With us is Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, member of the National Academy of Sciences, author of numerous books, including his most recent, The Madhouse Effect. He's also the recipient of the Tyler Prize. His website, Michael Mann with two N's, dot net, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. Uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. What the hell is going on here with this? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's good to be with you. Well, this isn't surprising, right? It's an obvious extension of the bad faith that this administration has demonstrated when it comes to acting on the climate crisis. And one of the tricks that they have used is basically to dismiss the actual damage that's being done by climate change. If you do a cost-benefit analysis and you lowball the effort of the costs, obviously it's going to tell you what in this case, you want to hear that there's no reason to act. That's the message that the current administration, the Trump administration, is trying to convey. And the way they do that 
is by, in essence, ignoring the damage that's done by climate change using what's known as the social cost of carbon of $1 to $7. The idea is if you burn a ton of carbon, they're saying it only does damage of about $1 to $7 to the economy and to the environment. That's the damage done, when in fact it's at least an order of magnitude higher than that. As you mentioned, the Obama administration used a more conventional estimate of the social cost of carbon of about $50, rising to $80. ExxonMobil had an even higher estimate than the Obama administration. That's right. The world's largest fossil fuel company actually assessed the damages of climate change as even greater than what the Obama administration had estimated, $60 a ton. And in reality, if you talk to scientists who are studying the impacts of climate change and assessing the real damage that's done, it's probably in the hundreds, hundreds of dollars of damage done to us, done to the environment, done to our economy, when it comes to our health, when it comes to national security, when it comes to the spread of infectious diseases, like we're dealing with now. All of these things, the damage that's done by inaction is far greater than any cost of actually taking action. And that's where the Trump administration has tried to gain these calculations by lowballing estimates of the damage that's done. And, you know, this isn't unique to them. If you look at sort of the modern campaign to forestall action on climate, it's sort of moved away from outright denial because it's very difficult to claim that nothing's happening. And it's moved into sort of a, a softer form of denial. This is what I call the new climate war in my upcoming book in January. And it's this evolution away from denying the reality to basically denying the threat that it represents or deflecting attention from the real solutions, which is doing something about our fossil fuel burning. It's just another way of kicking the can down the road and forestalling, delaying action on climate. Right. While they continue to extract fossil fuels and pump them into our atmosphere and make a pile of money doing it. It occurs to me that there there may be a longer term strategy at work here, Dr. Mann, starting with Al Gore, really, with his campaign back 20 years ago. There was an effort to impose a tax on carbon. I mean, if carbon pollution is costing us, even if it's costing us a dollar a ton, you know, the Trump administration number, or $50 a ton, the Obama administration number, or $60 a ton, what, you know, what ExxonMobil set of costs, shouldn't there be a tax that reflects that? I mean, it's very simple stuff. It's like one of the reasons why we tax alcohol higher than orange juice is because there's a social cost to alcohol. People get alcohol, you know, fatty liver disease, and alcoholic cirrhosis, and they die. Not to mention yeah. car accidents and everything else. So we try to recover some yeah. of those costs with a tax. We do the same thing with cigarette taxes. So if they're lowballing their estimate of what the cost of burning carbon is, doesn't that put them in a position where when it becomes... You know, when climate change becomes, not just climate change becomes obvious, but the negative consequences become so obvious that every American gets it. You know, horrible tornadoes, floods, wildfires, all that kind of stuff. It's all getting worse literally every year. At some point, there's going to be just an absolute consensus across America. This is totally screwed up and we got to do something about this. Let's talk about a carbon tax. And this is their way of saying, okay, let's talk about a carbon tax. Let's start that conversation at a dollar a ton rather than $50 a ton. What do you think? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it, Tom. You know, the fossil fuel industry and those that are promoting their interests aren't dumb. 
They see the writing on the wall. They suspect, as the rest of us does, that this administration is coming to an end and Republican control of our government is coming to an end. And seeing that, they want to lay the groundwork when Democrats do run Congress, when there's a Democratic president and we're ready to move forward in taking action on climate. They want to seat at the table where they can pretend to be part of the legitimate conversation, where they can say, yeah, we think this is a problem and we should do something about it. And by the way, here's our proposal, a $1 tax per ton of carbon. And of course, a carbon tax is just one way of pricing carbon, of forcing polluters to pay. And if we do end up adopting a carbon tax, it has to be done in a just way. We have to make sure that frontline communities, those who are being most impacted by climate change, don't have to pay inordinately. And so there's a social justice and a climate justice conversation to be had about how we go about pricing carbon to make sure it's done in a progressive rather than a regressive way. And there are ways to do that. Um, when it comes to how you return the revenue. You can return the revenue preferentially to frontline communities. And there are other ways of incentivizing the shift away from fossil fuels, leveling the market so renewable energy can compete, like subsidies for renewable energy. And so these are all sort of tools in the toolbox, pricing carbon, subsidies and incentives for renewable energy, doing something about the pipeline, the fossil fuel pipeline. And we're seeing action there as well. And hopefully more will go forward and people will wake up to the BS that this administration is peddling. Dr. Michael Mann, it's always such an honor to have you with us, sir. Thank you, my friend. I'm so glad you could drop by. Thank you, Dr. Mann. Always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Tony Corbo is on the line. He's a senior lobbyist at Food and Water Watch's food campaign, Food and Water Watch A-N-D. Foodandwaterwatch.org is the website, and Food A-N-D Water. Food and Water is the Twitter handle. Tony, welcome to the program. It's okay for us to eat chickens that have cancer? Do I have that right? Well, that's that's what USDA has decided to do in granting a petition filed by the National Chicken Council. So why does the National Chicken Council feel it's important that Americans eat chickens who are infected with cancer? Well, they filed a petition on March the 1st, 2019, arguing that avian leukosis, which is a viral condition in poultry that causes tumors to appear on the skin of chickens and also in the various organs, is not a food safety issue. And in fact, The way that the USDA had wanted them to sample for leukosis was an undue burden on the industry. And so they filed a petition asking that the sampling regime be abolished and that if a chicken carcass appeared to have leukosis, all that needed to be done was to trim, to use a knife to eliminate the the tumor. Up until now, if a chicken carcass had leukosis, the carcass would be condemned. The entire carcass would be condemned and removed from entering the food supply. We know that there are viruses that cause cancer. Probably the most famous one for humans is the human papillomavirus, which causes uterine cancer and throat cancer and other kinds of cancer. So here we've got with chickens a virus that is causing tumors. Is there a concern that this virus may be a human pathogen? Is this, I mean, is there a legitimate health concern here around this issue? Or is this more, oh, that's pretty grody, we're eating tumors? 
Well, I mean, the thing is that it's not as COVID is, you know, a zoonotic disease that can be transmitted from an animal to humans. But up until now, the USDA has considered leukosis to be a condition that is unwholesome. And so from a food safety standpoint, where you could contract a disease from eating chicken that had leukosis, no. But it is a gross condition. And so USDA, ever since the Poultry Products Inspection Act went into effect in, in 1957, this particular disease was considered to be unwholesome and carcasses had to be destroyed from entering the food supply. Is this virus starting to rip through? I mean, back in 1957, most chickens that were consumed by humans in the United States were probably grown on small family farms. This explosion of factory farming really, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it came out of the 1980s by and large, late 70s through the early 90s. And now most of our chicken is coming out of these giant factory farms, which are just like breeding pits. Is that what's happened here? That when you've got a million chickens in a facility and you've got an infectious virus that causes tumors, that you just can't stop it. And so, hey, we, you know, America's just got to eat this stuff. You make a very valid point because of the way the farming has changed and we have these massive operations that, you know, once a virus makes it into a flock, it'll spread like wildfire. And so while there are vaccinations that can control this virus, it's not completely been eradicated. So what essentially the chicken council is saying, don't look for it anymore. Even if you have chickens that are infected with this particular virus, it's okay because it's not a food safety concern. So we're going to allow sick chickens essentially to go onto our dinner tables. You know, a large chunk of the animal products of the animals that we feed and slaughter in the United States are actually shipped overseas. China is the largest market. In fact, the largest pork producer in America, I believe it's Smithfield, is an entirely Chinese or a largely Chinese owned company. And at the time that Donald Trump was saying, oh, there's going to be a shortage of meat, and the industry was saying there's going to be a shortage of meat, they'd actually increased their exports to China at the time. Is that the case with chicken as well? And is there going to be a backlash by foreign importers of U.S. chicken to this? I mean, is this something that could uh, you know, take a bite out of the industry or... Do they have some way around it? The Japanese in particular, I know, you know, American exports, they're very concerned about. No, it could very well impact our export markets. I mean, it's interesting that when the Poultry Products Inspection Act was passed by Congress in 1957, it explicitly said we have to remove unwholesome poultry from the food supply because it can impact the industry both domestically and for our export markets. Yeah, China has resumed importing poultry products from the United States, and it stopped for a while as part of the wonderful trade war that Trump started. But the poultry exports have resumed to China and to other markets. So this could have an impact on the export market. Tony Corbo, he's with Food and Water Watch's food campaign, foodandwaterwatch.org is the website and food and water Twitter handle. Tony, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thanks, Tom. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What happens when an administration comes into power and decides to replace the protectors with the predators? When the USDA is being run by a lobbyist, when the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is being run by a lobbyist, the Defense Department is being run by a lobbyist, the Justice Department, well, Bill Barr, I'm not sure you could call him a lobbyist, but a fascist. What happens? It's starting to get real. It's starting to get very, very real. Jenny Harbine is with us. She's the staff attorney for Earth Justice, earthjustice.org, Twitter handle Earth Justice. Jenny, tell us about how the Trump administration, and I'm assuming the Interior Department plays some role in this, are dealing with leasing federal lands to coal miners. The Trump administration, from its very first days, began making good on a campaign promise to try to revive the coal industry by rolling back regulations that are designed to protect you and me. They're designed to protect the health of our planet and the health of our people. And the Trump administration committed to rolling back these regulations in really what's a desperate attempt to keep the failing coal industry alive. And so in March 2017, in the very early days of the administration, the Trump administration lifted a moratorium on federal coal leasing, and in doing so, opened up the entire federal mineral estate, uh, covering 570 million acres of public land, land owned by you and me, to exploitation by coal companies. So what is specifically happening right now? Is this all in the in kind of the legal moving paperwork around stage, or has somebody showed up with trucks and digging machines and you know, explosives, however they're going to take the coal out? These are federal lands, right? These are the parks that, the federal lands that Teddy Roosevelt helped create? Yeah, these are federal lands. These are lands owned by you and me. 85% of the mining of federal coal occurs on federal public lands in the Powder River Basin, primarily in Montana and Wyoming. But there's currently coal mining 
happening on federal public lands in 12 states over 300 leases. So, of course, we have existing mining happening in these public lands. And there are still a host of mining companies that have lease applications pending that are trying to get their hands on more of our publicly owned coal. Currently, there's six and a half billion tons of unmined coal on federal public lands that the government considers recoverable or economically mineable by these companies. And the Trump administration wants to open the floodgates to this mining that's so harmful to our communities, our health, our water, our air, and, you know, very significantly our climate. And we filed a lawsuit or justice filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Northern Cheyenne tribe and a host of conservation organizations in 2017. In fact, the day that the administration took this unlawful action and we won that lawsuit. Last year, a federal district court in Montana said it was illegal for the Trump administration to open up these public lands to mining without going through the legally required process of evaluating uh, the environmental consequences of that decision. But the Trump administration did, in our case, what it's done in so many other cases, which is slap together a document that it says will comply with the court's order, puts it in front of the court and says, mission accomplished, we satisfied, we checked all the boxes of the required environmental review, and now we're good to go. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, although we won that first lawsuit, we're now back in court challenging the Trump administration's really inadequate and I would say even immoral analysis of the consequences of, of this very significant decision to reopen our public lands to coal leasing. Remarkable. We're talking with the staff attorney for Earth Justice, Jenny Harbine. You know, Trump is in office for another four or five months, arguably six months, I guess, until January 20th, assuming that he doesn't get reelected, which may not be a safe assumption, but nonetheless... Do you see this being resolved within that time window? And what can the average person who might be listening to this conversation do to support the efforts that you guys are taking to try to basically defend our country against more carbon pollution and and our lands against being more ravaged by these miners? Those are great questions, Tom. I'll take the second one first, which is what can people do? And, you know, I have been so heartened in the wake of the 2016 election to see how ordinary people are standing up and saying this is not acceptable. Not only are folks taking to the streets to hold this administration, our elected officials, accountable to the law, to the science, you know, to the public trust, people are really taking action into their own hands and making responsible choices about their day-to-day activities how do we how do we make decisions about activities that are going to increase our carbon footprint increasingly i think that personal accountability accountability by states and cities and tribes are coming into the fore as we've seen this just federal vacuum when it comes to responsible climate policy 
whether this issue will be resolved, the answer is no. This case will go beyond the Trump administration if we have a new president in November. But if left unchallenged, of course, this decision would remain and its harmful impacts would continue to impact our communities and our air and water and climate. And I don't know if this is an apt analogy, but I'm thinking about the waning days here or what may be the waning days of the Trump administration in comparison with the waning days of the coal industry, which is that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can see that we have an energy future that's cleaner, more sustainable, affordable, and doesn't cause these disproportionate impacts on the American people across the globe. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But the Trump administration and the coal industry alike can cause a tremendous amount of harm in their death throes. And this lawsuit is aiming to prevent that harm, both by the administration and the coal industry, frankly. Yeah. Jenny Harbine with uh, EarthToJustice.org. Jenny, thank you. Keep up the great work. Thanks for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, good talking with you. In this week's Geeky Science, the journal Pediatrics, which is published by the Journal of the American Medical Association, they reported on a study out of Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago that found that while children are less likely to have symptoms of coronavirus, they still get it. And quoting from today's New York Times, infected children have at least as much of the coronavirus in their noses and throats as infected adults. And of course, if it's in their nose and throat, when they talk, it's going to get in the air and you're going to get it, according to the research. Indeed, children younger than age five may host up to 100 times as much of the virus in the upper respiratory tract as adults. So yeah, let's throw all those kids into a school setting and let them cough and play with each other and all that kind of stuff and then have them go home and say hi to mom and dad, right? Makes perfect. And grandpa and grandma. It's just breathtaking. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home Yes, cool! or attending one live you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.